and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, just thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your continued support. If you liked today's episode, we would love it if you went on social media and shared this conversation. You can share it on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is your social. It really does help us expand our reach when you share these conversations. Thanks to everybody who has already done so, and thanks to those of you who will do so in the future. Also, if you like today's episode, go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can give as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month to help us as we continue to build this thing out. We appreciate all of you that have already subscribed to the show. And thanks to those of you who will go over right now and go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. Now to today's guest. Cody Royal is somebody who I connected with on Twitter. I liked some of the stuff he was putting out. I saw that he spoke at a conference, Leaders in Performance. If you're not familiar with Leaders in Performance, they do really interesting content around leaders in sport and in, and outside of sport. And Cody is somebody who's passionate about coaching coaches. And if you have listened to this podcast and the past, you know that I am also extremely passionate about the intersection between leadership and executive coaching and the sport world. So I work as a mental performance coach where I work with athletes and sports teams and coach coaches and people in front offices. And I also work in the corporate world doing executive coaching. So Cody is someone who I loved chatting with before the podcast. And then when we connected on the podcast, I got to learn more about his story. So a little bit about Cody. He's an author, a keynote speaker. He's a podcast host and a football coach. And when I say football coach, I mean Australian rules football. So he is the head coach for AFL Team Canada, which is the men's national program for Australia rules football. And Cody is also a a big voice in the crossover of leadership principles between sports and business. His first book, Where Others Won't, proposed that businesses should look at how pro sports teams focus on team dynamics and talent optimization in order to innovate. In this conversation, we're also going to talk about how the sports world now needs to leverage some of business's best practices when it comes to human development and what that might look like going forward. 
So his podcast, Where Others Won't, is a great listen. I highly recommend it. I listen to a few of the episodes and I'm continuing to catch up as he puts them all out at one time so you can binge listen to them. And I highly recommend following Cody on Twitter. He's at Cody Royal. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Cody Royal. Cody, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We don't know each other technically. We met on social media, which sounds so 2019. And when I started following you and seeing some of the content you were producing, there seemed to be this interest in coaching coaches or coaching leaders. And that is something that I am doing a deep dive into. We had on Wade Gilbert, uh, who really studies how do you coach leaders and has written books on coaching coaches. And so I'm really excited to unpack that with you today. But before we get to what your expertise is and what you found out and your book and your podcast, I want to go back a little bit and get a sense of what life was like for you as a little kid. And I think everyone will notice pretty quickly that you have an accent. So share with everybody what life was like for, for you many, many, many miles away from Canada or the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll just start. How good is Twitter, by the way? I, I have like four uh, podcast this week and pretty much all of them are people that I've met or contacted through Twitter. So if you're not on it, get on it. Uh, Cody, Cody, I once told my sister-in-law that if you're not on Twitter, you're ignorant. And <laughs> I, I said, I know this is going to sound harsh and brash, but I, I do think people that are not on Twitter or are using Twitter for the wrong purposes, they're missing out on so much content and so much information and then so much connection with the world that they might be interested in. So Twitter's not perfect, nothing is, but if you leverage it correctly, it can be an amazing resource, including connecting the two of us. Exactly, yeah. Uh, to dive into your actual question, now that we've promoted Twitter, uh, Jack Dorsey, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, so my background, I'm Australian. And so I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, which is the second largest city in Australia. Uh, some people don't go. They tend to go to Sydney and then kind of go north. But we're on the south coast and it is a sports mad city. And our big sport there is Aussie rules football, which is the, the sport that I come from. And I still coach even here in Toronto. And so you know, my childhood was, was literally just an obsession with sports and it, it uh, certainly lent towards Aussie rules, but more so it was just anything I could get my hands on there, you know, going through photo albums now that I'm 35, like when I go home, it, it blows me away. Every single shot of me is with a football in my hand, with a cricket bat in my hand, anything to do with sport, wearing a sports t-shirt. I used to have this Damon Hill, Williams Renault Formula One t-shirt that I would wear everywhere. So yeah, to, to, to kind of answer your question, it was just sports, sports, sports. And I'm sure my mum would back me up on that. And, and, and Aussie rules football, a lot of people listening to this won't know much about that. And cricket, a lot of people that are listening won't know what that sport is about. So paint the picture of both Aussie rules football and cricket and what that was like for you. Yeah, Aussie rules football is, it's not rugby. It's often confused with rugby. It, it looks like a little bit of a mishmash of a whole bunch of games. And it's uh, indigenous to Australia. It's only played professionally there. And um, funnily enough, though, it's the fourth largest sport in terms of weekly attendance in the world. So um, 
you know, I think it's about 40 or 50,000 people every week uh, on average go to games. So the attendance is really high. Uh, our grand final blows the Super Bowl out of the water in terms of attendance. It's usually over 100,000 in the stadium. Um, and there's a hell of a lot of money in it now. You know, the, the TV rights alone are well over a billion dollars. And for a country of 24 million people to have a sports property like that is, is astronomical. Um, but to, to explain the game a little bit, it's, it's essentially a, a huge game of keep ball. Um, we use a rugby-esque ball in terms of a similar shape. But essentially what you're trying to do is pass by kicking rather than throwing. And um, if you're semi-familiar with it, the reason that there's so many Australian punters in the NFL right now and in college football is because they come from my sport. So our expertise is kicking a ball, a rugby-shaped ball with your foot and being able to uh, contort it in all different ways, left foot, right foot, you know, have it swing, have it go straight, all sorts of different tricks. And you're actually not the first Aussie we've had on and not the first Aussie that was passionate about Aussie football. We had it on a guy named Brad Craddock and Brad was the Lou Garza award winner for the best field goal kicker in college football when he played at University of Maryland. And Brad told me that people in Australia grow up using their feet and using their feet to, to kick a ball. And so in the U.S., we tend to grow up using baseball and, and throwing and using our hands or basketball. And so talk about that dynamic uh, for you growing up. Was using your feet something that was a part of your childhood? And, and what did you like about Australian rules football? Yeah, he's exactly right. What Brad said is uh, exactly right. We, we grow up kicking a ball. So we would, when, you know, North Americans would go out to, you know, throw the ball with their dad in the front yard, we would go out and kick a ball. And so the same as, you know, we would admire uh, a quarterback's ability to, you know, uh, drop a ball into this tiny little pocket. Uh, we can do the same with our feet. And that's just, yeah, that's how you grow up. And um, it, it's funny, you know, me and some Aussie mates will go tailgating often and we'll generally grab a ball and start to kick it around. And there's kind of the, uh, you know, the, a few jaws hit the ground when they can see what, <laughs> what everyone can do um, with their feet. But yeah, exactly. Like, you know, Melbourne is, is obsessed with Aussie rules football. And so there's no other option. And so we grow up in this environment and we learn to play. There's a very large uh, community aspect to it. So, for instance, after you've finished um, playing at, uh, at school or for your, your local junior teams, there's actually open-aged men's and women's leagues. So uh, it's not where you stop playing after college like we have in North America. You would have a local club which would represent your suburb and then you'd go and play there until you're 40. And so it's a, there's a community feel to it. And a, and a recreational feel, and, and some of those leagues are you know paying five hundred, eight hundred, a thousand dollars a game uh, for those guys. So it's a, a nice little money maker as well. And what was life like for you growing up? You you're about to mention mom, and I cut you off. But uh, what was life for you childhood? Uh, give us your background as far as your family goes. Yeah, single mom raised me and my sister, and so um, you know we we certainly weren't. Uh, privileged in any way shape or form we were very much middle class and mum had to work very hard you know single income to raise my sister and I and especially probably the the demands of my sporting activities were 
uh, would weigh heavily on on the finances. Um, but yeah, we you know we would, for instance, we would drive to uh, holidays, uh, vacation. You know, we couldn't afford to fly, and uh, so it was very much a, a tight knit group of three, and we lived away from most of the rest of our family. So aunts and uncles were kind of uh, you know around during the vacations, but otherwise it was just the three of us. So really tight bond at home. And, uh, yeah, for me, it was, uh, I was always off kicking a ball somewhere. So, um, you know, there's obviously the extended family that you get from teammates and, and the dads and mums that would drive me around there as well. What were the values that mom passed down to you and your sister? Hard work for sure. Uh, and I, you know, I think that that one, as I grow up, hits me a lot harder that, uh, the things that I think are difficult certainly aren't given what my mother went through and, you know, uh, a female, uh, salesperson in a, she worked for Kraft Foods. So, you know, huge, uh, multinational conglomerate and to become one of the top salespeople there, you know, during the eighties and nineties was not something that, you know, it sounds pretty regular now. Um, but for someone without a, even a high school education, uh, for her to be able to achieve that plus raise two children means that, uh, yeah, uh, hard work to me is not something that's foreign because it's been modeled to me my entire life. And dad, did you ever know dad? Have you met him? Where, where, where was he? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he left very early on in the piece. Um, my, uh, the rest of his family is one of five boys and the, my four uncles and my grandpa and grandma, uh, we're all still part of my family. You know, my 82 year old grandfather, uh, flew over to my wedding recently. He's, uh, you know, the, the male role, the, the male role model for me. Um, but my father wasn't really in the, the piece, but I, I certainly did have access to, to my uncles and, and grandfather and, and they were able to show me what it was to, to grow up and, uh, and be a man. And if we were to go to a 13 year old version of you, what what would what were you thinking your future would look like? Any idea when you're 13, maybe 18? Uh, what were you thinking that you'd want to do when you grow up? I certainly didn't know what Toronto, Canada was, uh, and we can get into that later. But it would have been a pro- professional Aussie Rules player, full stop. So not you were even obsessed, obsessed. Not with even it. not even a second option. There wouldn't have even been a third option. Uh, that was it, and that's all I ever really wanted to do. And, um, so draft age in Australia is 18 or was 18 when I was going through. So it was just, uh, all guns blazing at that. And, uh, I was an okay student, but it was always second fiddle and I never really applied myself in school. Um, I still did well, but it just wasn't interesting to me. I was just down this, this path in sports, which I'm, you know, being in North America is so common. Um, but yeah, it was, it was exactly the same for me on the other side of the world. And you're 18 years old. Do you get drafted? What, what comes next for you? Yeah, I just missed out on the draft. I got injured uh, in my top age year. So you play uh, 17 and, and 18 years of age. You play in a big statewide league, which is representative. And essentially all the AFL clubs, the professional Aussie rules clubs draft from there. Uh, so I was in the elite group. I, I played for the state. Um, so we have state competitions. Uh, I played for the state in 
the fifth, uh, under 15 age group, under 16 age group and under 18 age group, but just wasn't quite elite, elite enough to get drafted. So it kind of uh, died from there. And uh, that really, funnily enough, started my obsession with coaching. All right, but you're 18 years old, you're single-minded, you're obsessed. How does that hit you when you realize you're not good enough or for whatever reason you're not able to play at the level that you dreamt of playing at? Very tough, very tough. It was the first time that I'd say even on the field, I was really unable to understand my emotions and why I wasn't motivated. Uh, and so I played in the semi-professional league uh, for a club called Port Melbourne. Uh, so like in, you know, the AHL in hockey or, you know, the recently folded Alliance League, or it was a kind of a minor league. Um, that was still, it would still put me on show. But yeah, at 19, 20, I was just an emotional wreck. And my, you know, my skills started to disappear. My drive started to disappear. I just... I really didn't care anymore. And so it certainly did hit me hard. And I'm sure, I don't remember, but I'm sure it affected my, my college uh, and, and learning and, uh, and everything as well because uh, I, I just wasn't sure like, what I was going to do in the world. When you say emotional wreck, what did that look like? Uh, there were times where even at training, I uh, just couldn't be motivated. If the coach barked at me, I would just turn around and say, you know, uh, almost kind of flip the burden just feel like, you know, F you, man. I, yeah. So my response to things just really changed. I'd, I, I think I'd, uh, you know, I'd been a, a captain of my club. And so I, you know, I was, uh, I saw myself as a leader and just all of that disappeared. Cause I, yeah, it was just this whole uh, uncertainty had swept over me and yeah. So in a whole range of different disciplines, I'm sure I wasn't fun to be around <laughs> at that time. And you mentioned coaching started to come into your life. Why, how, walk me through, why coaching? Yeah, it was during that time and it's not something that I'd really thought about, but uh, you know, one of the things that I dealt with was paralysis by analysis, even during games. So I would run to a position on the field and expect to receive the ball uh, and wouldn't get it. But I'd actually run to the right position for how we would try and move the ball. But, um, you know, teammates might not have the confidence to pass it to me there or might not have the, be able to kick that far or whatever it was. And so I, I was always kind of coaching myself on the field and all of these things bundled together. I started to really look a lot more closely at how to coach the game and how I would coach the game if I was given the opportunity. And it led to me being essentially quitting playing at age 23 and I started coaching uh, from there, which is very young for our age. Cause again, you can play at a, at a local league and make money until your you know, late thirties and into your forties. And then you would start to coach. Uh, whereas for me, it became this intellectual puzzle that actually re-stimulated my love for the sport uh, that I, I didn't know was there, but it just became that obsessive thing that I had with playing I no longer wanted to play and I wanted to try to figure out the puzzle uh, in my mind and, and with other coaches. And when you were looking into figuring out the puzzle, what did you do? How did you explore it? What, did, what were your steps to try to figure out how to do this job that's known as coaching? 
we started uh, me and my my best mate uh you know we've been uh, we moved to melbourne the same year uh went to the same school uh and kind of been inseparable since we were eight years old and, and we started coaching his little brother's team so it was an under 15 team so still junior boys and yeah so it was just to, to dive straight in we again we had ideas we were young young bucks with some some ideas about how the game should be played and so we thought we would impose them on 15 year olds <laughs> and and so that was the the step into it but then a whole range of opportunities opened up obviously i'd played at a high level so uh, I had people watching me and I had access to people that I could learn from during that time as well that were in the elite rungs of coaching so it was a little bit twofold it was just start and then add on top of uh, using other people's expertise after that. It's interesting though you talked about paralysis by analysis as a player but here you are sort of looking at your coaches and saying oh I think I might be able to do that better but I'm going to go start with 15-year-olds and sort of sharpen my axe there. So I'm hearing these polarities of, I believe I can do it better, but I still have a lot to learn. How do you make sense of those sort of binaries? Yeah, exactly. And you know what? At age 23, trying to be a coach, uh, you know, I wasn't going to walk into the top rungs, certainly. Uh, and especially without that professional experience as a professional player. There are very few AFL coaches that ever make it to the top without having actually played. So there's still that, you know, it's not like the NFL where you can you know, play high school and then just kind of walk into, you know, a Sean McVay kind of figure where you play a little bit in college and then um, get a job. And so by the time you are 23, you're in a, an NFL environment. Um, that doesn't really happen in our sport. So yeah, to answer your question though, uh, to be honest, yeah, it was that tr it was a little bit of testing whilst also learning. Uh, I think this is the right idea. And I think this is how I think the game should be played. Uh, I'll test it on, uh, you know, the, uh, 15s age group, but then also I want to add other people's ideas on top of mine in case this works so that we can go to the next level. So it certainly wasn't a pig headed. This is the only way it was a, let's test this idea and see if it does work. What did you like about coaching? Uh, the, and still to this day, and even from a broader leadership perspective, it is that puzzle, that intellectual puzzle. You're just constantly solving problems. And again, I think that was what led to my analysis, uh, paralysis analysis as a player is that that was going on in my head anyway, and I didn't have an outlet for it and I couldn't free myself from that and go into some sort of flow state. Um, especially as I got higher and higher in the levels. However, in what I found in coaching was that I was able to my analysis of what's going on in the game actually gets better the higher I get and with the, the more elite players that I coach. And so um, what, you know, a, a detrimental element to have as a player has probably turned into a competitive advantage as a coach, which I like as well. And like I said, it's kind of re-stimulated my love for the sport, which had, had disappeared. It's such a fascinating thought, which is what makes a great coach is their ability to analyze, evaluate, uh, figure out what the next move would be, almost be strategic 
Whereas a player, it's really about coming back to that present moment and just being there in that space. And I think CEOs are kind of similar, and this might be a good transition to some of the work you're passionate about. When I coach CEOs, we're always trying to think strategically about where they're going one year from now, three years from now, five years from now. And if you listen to the tech CEOs, they say, yeah, we're always working on five years out. And I think a head coach in the same vein needs to do certain things to get their team to where they want to go. The NCAA uh, men's basketball championship was last night. And you hear college basketball coaches all, talk about all the time in September, October, November. We're not, not trying to peak now. We're trying to peak in March. And so I'm thinking about what you're talking about, which is as a player, if I get too far ahead of myself and too strategic, it can actually paralyze me from what I need to do in the moment. Whereas as a coach, I need to constantly come back to where do we need to go? How do we need to get there? And what can I do to try to unlock that potential? And CEOs in the business world are, are pretty similar. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as I try to unpack what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, that, it's definitely a, a parallel that's often drawn and you know, I, I talk around North America and often it is to CEOs, but I, I'm also unsure that that's the best parallel. I, th I think coaching, uh, and, and again, this is just my interpretation, but I think there's, there's certainly that long-term view, but ultimately, you know, coaches need to be in that moment as well and be that tactical um, side of things as well, whilst also driving to that uh, long-term goal. So, where I try to talk is less to CEOs and, and more to middle management. Those are the head coaches. Those are the guys that are actually, they're A, in the trenches, but also with a view to the long term. And, and so that's, you know, even my book, I, I, I tried to write that to directors, senior managers, managers within these big organizations. So I think that's where the learning is. Because um, to your point, Brian, like, uh, you know, a, a CEO is almost more like an owner or a general manager who's five years out. Where are we taking this thing? Uh, and then, the, yeah, the coach sits there and is executing with an eye to that longer term. But ultimately, it's did we win tonight? If not, why not? That's such a good distinction. And you see that play out in pro sports. And when you see the head coach become the general manager and have conflicted viewpoints, because I agree, I think the head coach's job is how do we win? And they're often focused on how do we win? And a general manager might say, how do we set up a culture in an organization that can lead us to win a championship? And so you see the head coach sometimes with draft picks, for example, uh, not play a draft pick because they can't help them win today. Uh, and the general manager saying, hey, we need to develop this person. Uh, and actually, I worked with a college basketball team this year where they had to figure out how do we play our young people while still trying to win and not sacrificing our values and our competitive spirit. And I think college sports teams really struggle with that because there's always this pressure to win because you get fired if you don't win. And you might have freshmen and sophomores that you're trying to develop for the next three or four years. So that is really interesting. And then I'll go back to something you said, which really resonates with me is I actually think going back to the player, a great player will be thinking ahead while understanding that when they're in between the lines, all that matters is this moment. So I think a great player will visualize himself in the future, will 
try to have some perfectionism. We'll try to make sure that everything is aligned. Like I was just reading about Rafael Nadal. Like right. Nadal is obsessive, but once he gets between the lines, he leverages routines and just tries to be as comfortable as he possibly can be. But when he's training, he tries to be really uncomfortable. Or the New Zealand All Blacks, who you probably are familiar with, even though they are not the country that you're from. And there's all this. There's, I feel like Australia and New Zealand is kind of like the U.S. and Canada. So uh, we, can, we can unpack that. But the All Blacks, like, hey, they have this training that is all about discomfort and all about growing and improving and learning. But when they do the haka and then they're getting ready to go to battle, it's about being comfortable. And, and uh, Kerr's great book, Legacy, uh, he talks about, I think it's blue head and red head and trying to be blue headed where you're clear and you're comfortable and exactly where you want to be. Whereas when you're red headed, um, I forget the exact terms, but you're um, sort of tense and you are uh, sort of in a place of friction. So I know I just spoke a lot. Um, so I want to bring it back to you, but I, I do think it's interesting as you think about your own career and having this ability to be analytical and how that served you as a coach and how maybe at times it didn't serve you as a player when you're between the lines. But I'm sure that analysis also is what allowed you to get to a really high level. So it's almost like what got you here won't necessarily get you there, but let's appreciate what also got you here. Um, and leverage that as well once you become a coach. Yeah, and I think you, what you've just described from a player's perspective is also what I try to do with coaching as well because, you know, th that ability to flip-flop mindsets and actually control those mindsets in the appropriate times I think is something that often as coaches we're trying to teach to the players, but it's just as applicable to us. And so, you know, like even for me, I, I don't, I'm not a, a shouting coach. I don't stand there and yell and scream. And, you know, our field is so big that it wouldn't do anything anyway uh, because the players can't hear what I'm saying. And, you know, yelling at the, at the umpire or the referee doesn't do anything. And so it becomes this kind of, as a coach, this Zen state. And it's just always, okay, what's going on? What's the scenario? What can I impact right now? And obviously that is just super, super tactical, but you're right. Like at that moment, nothing else matters. All the, uh, even winning doesn't matter. It's, you know, win each quarter. If we can win each quarter, we'll go some way to winning the game. But all the other stuff is just superfluous nonsense. And, um, you know, I feel like we tend to focus on that stuff so much, but ultimately as a coach, it's what's going on right now. How can I help my team right this very second, if at all. I want to get your thoughts. We're talking college basketball. We just had the pinnacle of college basketball. And over the last couple of weeks, there's been some debate on social media about Tom Izzo, uh, who if people that don't know who Tom Izzo is, legendary college basketball coach, one of the best that's ever done it. Uh, I've interviewed players of his at the NBA Combine, and they all love him. I mean, they all just love him and feel like, he has helped them develop not just as basketball players, but as men. And uh, for those that don't know, Izzo, uh, in one of the NCAA tournament games, got into it with one of his players, was very emotional, um, was in his face, um, very aggressive. And there were sort of these two, 
opinions on social media, and this is where Twitter can be an echo chamber, not necessarily the best place, but there was the opinion like, hey, this is wrong. This is verbal abuse. Uh, and then there's this other side that says, no, you have to be tough. This is what coaching is. And so I want to get your thoughts on Izzo, but then we're also watching Tony Bennett and I forget the Texas Tech head coach last night. And these guys are a generation below Izzo. And you see them just, especially Bennett, have this even keelness to him, this emotional control, this classiness to him. Uh, and, and he had that when he lost last year when he was the number one seed and they lost the 16 seed. And he had it again last night as he won a national championship. But what I really want to try to get your thoughts on is A, Izzo and, and seeing Izzo um, and the approach that Izzo takes. No one's going to deny this guy's ability to coach and the ability to get the most out of his players. But just to get your thoughts and your nuance, um, your nuanced opinion on, on watching that. And then also when you watch Bennett, and once again, I forget the Texas Tech head coach, but there's a different approach that they seem to take from the outside looking in. And, and so I don't watch the practices and I'm not in the locker room with those guys, but just from what we can see when they are performing, I just would love to get your thoughts on that, given that you study this stuff. Yeah, I, I'm a, a coaching nerd for this stuff. And obviously we've talked about my background being in Aussie rules, but I, you know, I, I love watching all coaches and, and learning from all different coaches. And this might be a, a decent little segue into the book and, and, and my podcast as well. And we can talk about that. But, um, you know, one of my core ideas around leadership is the idea of context. And it often gets lost and it certainly got lost in the discussion around ISO in that um, it's almost a, how dare people sit there and judge what is going on in that scenario uh, without knowing the context and what the context is in, in coaching in particular and that space is you have no idea the level of trust and the communication protocols that have been developed by that team. And uh, often, you know, those things obviously are, are developed and, and play out in the background, in the inner sanctum, in the locker room. But for people to just jump on social media and say he shouldn't be doing that, uh, that's just as much of a problem as uh, what they perceive he is doing. Um, and, and to kind of build on that idea a little bit, you know, people latch on to what they want and there's this idea in leadership at the moment that it kind of and I was funnily enough just tweeting about this earlier was a huge problem that I see is we're trying to create a singularity out of leadership in that there is one way and there is not one way and there are going to be your zen coaches like you've just described last night who have that emotional control there are going to be your more emotional coaches um, but what what I think we make the mistake of doing is we look at, you know, uh, John Wooden quotes about the, the carrot being mightier than the stick. And then you speak to people that played for John Wooden and they're like, he knew what the stick was. And, you know, I wrote a, a whole chapter on that in my book. I'm like, it's not, it's not carrot over stick, it's carrot and stick. And the, the use and the knowledge of when to use both of those uh, that is the artistry that is coaching. And yeah, there's, there's, I, I just think there's a, a whole lot of misunderstanding about that. And, and I kind of equate it almost to comedy. 
is comedy is so misunderstood that a lot of the time people think comedians are actually joking about the subject that they're talking about, whereas they are not. Often there is, like you said, nuance to the whole thing that we either don't comprehend right now or don't quite understand. And there's a, a little bit like coaching where, um, you know, I'm sure Tom Izzo standing there going, uh, I'm not sure what I've done here because this is how, you know, my, my culture and my communication patterns with these, this group of, of men has developed. Um, and so it's everyone else's understanding, not the team's understanding. And I think that's why, like you said, ev- everyone you talk to is like, I love the guy. It's interesting. People ask me my opinion on it. And I said, I don't really have an opinion. And I, um, in some ways that's the easy way, but in another way, it's the harder way because my initial reaction is to have an opinion, but then I scale back and I try to do the work and try to think about it a little bit more. And to your point, like I've worked with coaches that are very hard on their players from the outside looking in, but they're not seeing those coaches, how much time they spend meeting with that individual, how much time they spend having conversations with that individual and building the trust and the relationship and the dynamic. Um, And so I don't have an opinion because I don't feel like I had enough nuance and context to have an opinion on it. And I also know it's dangerous to just not have an opinion. And I think there's also a time to stand up because if you don't stand for something, then, then you stand for nothing. And I think it is, is important to stand up for things. So the good that I think comes out of that is hopefully everybody is thinking a little bit more about how can I do my job the best way possible. And I think there have been a lot of years of coaches and I'm not saying Izzo falls into this boat, but there have been coaches that have been demeaning towards players. I think that's been well-documented. And I do think coaches as an industry should be looking inward to say, is there a better way for me to communicate a message? And I do think that is true. And I think as we continue to progress, coaches will find other ways to get that message across in a different manner. And while still being authentic and while still giving a shit, because I think what you hear about those players that graduate from Michigan state and played for Izzo is that they know that he cares about them and cares deeply about them. And so that is the top value. And then the other values fill in from there. So how do I still care about them while finding a different way to communicate is a discussion that is a worthwhile discussion for coaches to have. And that's not to say that Izzo should be like Tony Bennett and Tony Bennett should be like Izzo. There's a lot of different ways to eat a Reese's and we need to constantly be reflecting on how I can do it better. And I hope that Izzo will take the time once he gets out of that space in the next couple of months. And maybe he will continue to have that dialogue with himself about, hey, is there any way I could have done it better? And maybe that's a good segue into what I know both of us are passionate about is coaching coaches. Because mm. if Izzo, who is a legend and has done incredible, every year it feels like his team just maxes out their talent. And he can get better. In the same way that LeBron James is incredible and LeBron should be thinking about how he can get better. In the same way that I think I'm pretty good at my job and I should be thinking about how I could get better. So I want to dive into with you coaching coaches and how you're thinking about that and and maybe perhaps in your research when you looked at leaders in and outside of sport, how they thought about coaching coaches or coaching CEOs or coaching directors or management. Where is that today and where do you think it's going in the next 10, 15, 20 years? 
Yeah, it's funny. So in December 2017, I published my book, which is called Where Others Won't. And it was this this idea of the business world looking at pro sports deeper than it had ever done before and actually look at how they recruit and lead and build culture and high performance and the lessons that they can learn from that. Because often, you know, from a business perspective, sport gets bundled just into motivation, which I I can see how that happened, but there are complete, uh, there are a whole set of different lessons that I I think they should be learning from. And funnily enough, on the flip side of that is now sports actually needs to learn from business where we've had these executive coaches uh, that are coaching CEOs and and coaching the C-suite and directors and uh, all these different uh, management positions. But in sport, there's still just one coach and he may or may not report to someone in particular. But for the most part, You might have a mentor, but doesn't actually have a coach, doesn't have someone there on call consistently that understands that exact scenario. And so I've been exploring this both in my writing, in my podcasting, in speaking to different people around all the leagues that that I have access to and the, uh, you know, the coaches that I have access to is why don't you as the coach have a coach? Because we know that we know the benefits of coaching. We know the benefits of coaching on fitness. You're going to get fitter. You're going to run a marathon faster if you're working with a coach. You're going to be a better CEO if you're working with a coach. You're going to have a better marriage if you work with a coach who can be there and and help you and your wife through troubled times. And so funnily enough, sports coaches, (laughs) the ones who should understand the power of that are the ones that don't tend to have coaches, which is kind of a bizarre thing to, to end up with. And that's how we connected, right? That is, we, is. We, I think we, we share that belief and I've started to do it. I know you've started to do it in some capacity as well. And there is not a firm, there is not a group of people that specializes in coaching sport coaches right now. There are people that are doing it. But if you ask the top 10 coaches in every pro sport, and you ask the top 10 college division one coaches, they don't have a coach. They might have a psychologist that works with the athletes and helps them develop culture. They might work with an organizational psychologist. Um, But if you asked the top 10 CEOs in Fortune 500 companies, or if you polled Fortune 500 companies, many of those CEOs are now getting coached. And it's an amazing uh, time in, in the world where, I'm looking at it and being like, man, let's do it. And I know we talked and I get excited. You can hear the tone of my voice just thinking about it. And so I know we're both exploring it right now. What do you think is the biggest challenge to people that want to coach coaches? What do, you, what do you think will get in the way of that being successful? My initial response to that is the ecosystem right now, the, the biggest challenge is I think the ego piece Um, and, you know, coaches have been put on a pedestal for so long and it's, there's kind of this idea that having a coach alongside them, even coaching them might somehow kind of degrade from that. Um, And I think that's still very much standing in the way of uh, a lot of those coaches who, you know, you and I know, and we've, we've spoken to enough of them that 
they are actually interested in improvement and they're inquisitive and, you know, you're kidding yourself if you think, you know, Bill Belichick has one way and, and he's not super inquisitive about everything and Steve Kerr, not super inquisitive and pop and all these guys, all the best guys at the top are the most inquisitive. Um, but I, yeah, I think they're, they're potentially still an ego. And then also what might be interesting to, to jam on for a little bit as well is it's a really, a really new career path for someone to go from coaching players and then jump over to coaching coaches and that has never been on the organizational structure before and so it becomes this question of like who's going to do it is someone that has is is a tom Izzo, Izzo when he finishes up would he be a good coach of coaches uh and like what's the profile for that or does he just have his ideas about how to coach players and that's his skill set. And so it, it's still finding its way as a discipline. And I think people like you and me could certainly uh, add a lot, but it's going to find its way in the next decade. And I guarantee you, if we have this, this conversation in 2029, it's a much different ecosystem that exists. Here's why I think it's not those coaches, because coaching in the sports world is about, it's more about teaching. It's more about providing answers. It's more about here, do this, and then go out and do your job. Um, Bill Belichick is all those guys you just mentioned. They are doing a ton of preparation, and then they're giving answers to the test. Now, every once in a while, you'll see a coach like Popovich give the clipboard to Tony Parker and say, hey, you write up a play. Or you know, they'll go to a timeout, and uh, a senior captain for a college basketball team will take the huddle and say a few things. But that's not the crux of what a sport coach's job is. A sport coach's job is to have some ego and to say, yes, I'm going to do this. I might be wrong, but I'm going to do this and, and I'm going to give you the answers to the test. In the same way that a teacher teaching a class is saying, all right, here's what we're studying. Here are the answers. Now we're going to have a test to see if you know the content. And so it is the acquisition of, of information, knowledge that is what a sport coach's job is. One of the reasons why this has become passionate for me is I went back to school to learn about executive coaching. Executive coaching is not about giving answers. It's about asking questions and understanding that your client is far better equipped to answer than you are. So the power structure of a sport coach is that the, the sport coach is actually supposed to have a better answer than a player because like what you talked about earlier, the player is so focused on the moment that they might not be able to see what's going on around them. They're just focused and staying in their lane. Whereas a sport coach says, hey, you do X, Y, and Z and we'll get to where you want to go. And executive coaching, it's the flip. It's the flip side. It's saying, I don't know what your job is. You're the expert. You're the genius. Let me ask some questions to help you think about this a little bit differently, see different possibilities so that you can unlock your potential from within and then from there go on. Now, that doesn't mean that a sport coach can't use some executive coaching skills because I did a a workshop uh, a couple of weeks ago to a number of division one coaches. And I basically taught them uh, the questions that make executive coaching powerful and they loved it. And that doesn't mean that an executive coach sometimes can't say, Hey, have you thought about this and maybe offer up a suggestion, but the crux of what sport coaching is and what executive coaching is are actually very, very different. And that's not to say a sport coach can't then learn what it takes to be an executive coach, but is it a different approach than what a sport coach is and vice versa, by the way, like I, 
I, I've been around these sport coaches. They're genius. They, I go into halftime of a locker room at a basketball game and what that sport coach sees, what that basketball coach sees, I'm like, are you watching the same game as me? I didn't see any of that. I missed it. The technique, the skills, the way you're seeing the game, I missed it because I'm just focused on the person. And to go back to what you were talking about, I think mental performance coaching for athletes is very tool-centric. Imagery, self-talk, goal setting. It's very much giving them the tools to then execute under pressure. That is different. If I try to tool a head coach in a sports world, they're going to look at me and they're going to say, no, that doesn't work. But if I ask great questions and you do this on your podcast with some brilliant people, you ask them great questions, they share their genius, but they think about things in a different way than how they had thought about them. All right. Now I've done a whole lot of talking. Feel free to riff on that. But these are things that I'm, I'm thinking about every single day for the last, I would say, six to eight months. Well, this won't be surprising to you because we've talked about this, but I, I agree with you. And I, I think the challenge with moving from uh, being a, a team coach to being a coach of coaches is that ego piece and that uh, you're right. It can be a learned skill set, and it, you know certainly a lot of people would be in a position to be able to learn that. But I, I think what would be tough would be the desire to step in uh, when things go wrong, and and so maybe that lends itself to if that was to happen, that you didn't actually coach coaches in your own sport. Um, so that could be an alternative there, and and yeah, again, innovation comes from the outside, right? So you could actually end up. Uh, being quite innovative by grabbing someone, if you're a football coach, actually going and grabbing someone from basketball who knows not much, like enough, but not much that's able to help. Um, and then another area that that is interesting as well is, and this is what's a little bit more prevalent in my sport in Aussie rules is high performance coaches who coach the coaching group. So not just an individual, but they actually, the team, their team is the head coach, all the assistants and everyone. And they become a facilitator for all of those uh, different coaches and the dynamics that exist between them. So communication patterns. Uh, I think that's a really interesting idea where you've just broadened it out one degree. And now you're actually dealing with team dynamics and individual dynamics uh, rather than just you and I, Brian, working together and I coach you. Um, there, there's something in the corporate world called team coaching, and I've witnessed it. And the idea of team coaching is we're sitting around a conference room table and they're having a meeting. And the team coach, their job, talk about being egoless. The team coach's job is maybe to ask one or two questions that entire meeting. And that's it. Like that's, it's like a game of chess and they're just sitting back and waiting for that one time where they can ask a question to unlock the potential of the group. And, and, and that's their job. And so for someone who has an ego, that's going to be really hard to sit on your hands when you've got a lot to say and to just wait for that moment. And I don't even know if I am egoless enough to, to play that role, to be honest. Um, but, but I agree with you. There's an amazing uh, potential for someone who's coaching the head coach and gets to sit in on, on the group dynamics and interject a question or two questions to get that group to think a little bit differently, just to get them to shift their perspective a little bit differently. And that's where an outsider too, and I think a consultant uh, can be really, really valuable. Last thought on this, 
I, again, I agree with you. And, you know, it does take that different thinking. And we've kind of touched on it a couple of times with what we've said is the most important thing in any of this from an organizational perspective is alignment. So if, if this isn't coming from the top and all the way down, you know, you look at the, the structure of anyone that's created sustained success, the All Blacks, the Spurs, the Patriots, Manchester United, there is alignment up and down the organization. And, you know, I, I talked to uh, this guy's name is Rasmus Ankerson. He's the, the football director at Brentford who play in the championship in England, the second tier underneath the Premier League. Their stadium is 12,000 people. They do not have huge budgets. They are this Moneyball-esque team uh, built on data. And they rethought every single process, not just on-field player acquisition, but everything around the club. And that's because the owner is a mathematician and statistician. And so, you know, all of this coaching of coaches and, and um, uh, how coaches act around players, it where you create the success is when the owner's on board, the general manager's on board, the coach is on board, the coach of the coaches is on board. And it's actually an organizational structure, not just this uh, little cell within an overall team that operates on its own. Um, and so all of these things, the letting go of the ego, uh, you know, all of that has to be part of this bigger group dynamic that has alignment and it's not just operating in isolation. So here you are, you're the head coach of the AFL team in Canada, which by the way, we didn't really get to how you jumped from Australia to Canada. They're not exactly next door neighbors. Um, first of all, if you could close that loop and just explain how you ended up uh, on this side of the world. And then secondarily, and I'm you know, loading these questions up, which isn't always easy for people to remember, but I think you'll be able to handle it. So first part is how you ended up in Canada. Second part, why explore this space outside of just being a coach why not just stay the path just focus on being the best coach you can be you know go back move back to australia even though you weren't an elite player and break the mold and you know become a great coach over there why are you exploring this new thing so first question why'd you move second question uh what has led you down this path and this journey to explore leadership well, they're actually linked, so I, I can uh, handle those two questions. Uh, yeah, left at 25, so I've been living in Toronto, uh, Ontario for uh, the last 10 years. And uh, I moved because I, I wanted to travel. I, I wanted to get out of the bubble. What people forget about Australia is it is a huge island in the middle of nowhere. There is no, uh, no neighbors. Like New Zealand is still across the sea. So, uh, you know, there's really no, going back to my idea of context, Australia really lacks context. There are no different languages. There are no, you know, all these different things because we're out on our own. And I just sensed from looking at media and, you know, even reading about soccer in, in the United Kingdom and the NFL in America, I was like, there's something different. I need to go and experience it. So I decided to leave and uh, being part of the Commonwealth, Canada was easy to, uh, jump over to, you know, uh, similar education systems, all that sort of stuff. So uh, work experience, very similar. So I, I came here and then I, I wasn't anticipating staying involved in Aussie rules once I got over here. But once I learned about the national team and the ability to work with, you know, more elite players, uh, I, I wanted to jump at that because I think that's my expertise. I, I couldn't coach kids football. I don't want to teach the game. If you come to me with a skill set, I can make you better. 
And so I got involved with the national team and, and I just kind of run with it. And the, the reason for the kind of obsession with leadership on a broader scale was, was that exact scenario. So here I am trying to build a national program, players from Vancouver, British Columbia, all the way to Halifax, Nova Scotia. And, you know, between nine to five, Monday to Friday, I'm still working a regular job. And I'm in one of the biggest companies in this country looking at leadership and culture and how they recruit. And just then I would go and do the same thing for myself on the weekends with my team. And there was just this kind of moment in time where I was absorbing, here's what the corporate world's doing. Here's what I'm trying to do. Why are these so different? Why are the two ideas of team building and corporate culture or culture in general, uh, communication palettes, the, the, you know, the wording that's used, you know, all these different things uh, at the same time. So just living it and breathing it every day. And so I started to become as equally obsessed as I am with coaching with the discussion around corporate leadership. And, you know, that stems, that ends up going to Harvard Business Review and, you know, all the, the articles and books. And uh, it's what it's ended up doing for me is, it becomes another knowledge platform. And I actually now, even though I study it very closely, I pinch ideas from both and use them in the opposite. And, um, you know, I think, again, uh, innovation comes from the outside, not the inside. And so it's allowed me to, to do some quite innovative things by bouncing between the two, including my podcast, which, you know, I, I have two guests on most of the time and one is from sport and one is from business and we kind of, you know, uh, have added about a particular topic. So it, it creates a really interesting dynamic. Two thoughts. One is I was listening to Paul Rabel on Michael Gervais Finding Mastery podcast. Shout out to that podcast. It's awesome. Uh, and I actually have had both Michael Gervais and Paul on this podcast. And so it's interesting hearing the two of them discuss. They're both way smarter than I am. And if you're not familiar with Paul, he's considered probably the best lacrosse player in the world. And he just started his own lacrosse league. Uh, so Paul is a dreamer and is somebody who is going for it. But Paul said that him learning business made him a better lacrosse player. And so often we think about it the other way. We think about, oh, you play your sport and then you'll be able to apply it to business. Well, Paul has learned a ton in business and he says it's allowed him to have more emotional control, to have better self-talk, to perform better in lacrosse. So that's one thought. The other thought I had was I had a conversation with a guy yesterday who was going to speak to a car dealership. And the car dealership has a million dollar budget to develop its people. A million dollars. And this isn't Coca-Cola. This isn't, you know, Apple or Google. You know, it's a car dealership. But they know that their greatest resource is people. And you compare that to, let's just use the San Antonio Spurs or the New England Patriots or whomever it might be. They're not at a point yet where they're spending that much money on developing their people. Now, are they getting into sports science? Absolutely. Uh, honestly, from a lot of people from your neck of the woods in Australia and New Zealand, those guys are actually leading the sports science revolution. But they're still not at a point where they're really uh, invested in the same way that corporate is as far as onboarding, uh, developing their high potentials, really thinking about it in that way. And it's been fascinating, like you said from the beginning, a lot of the corporate world tries to take things from sports and then integrate it in and they use stories or they bring in speakers. Um, 
But the other way around, it seems to be they're a little bit behind on that front. And I believe that if there is a culture that will emphasize that more and more, you see it with the Seattle Seahawks a little bit. You see it with the Chicago Cubs. You're seeing it start to take uh, shape in some of these organizations. I think there's going to be an arms race to who is developing their people and not just physically, not just technically, but also mentally or uh, holistically and not just their athletes, but actually their leadership team uh, and the impact that can flow from developing my coaches or my front office and what will transpire from that. And as you said, will trickle down, I think will be massive. And I, I hope, uh, we're just beginning to go down that path. We are. And yeah, agreed. And, and I would even go one step further. You know, I, I spoke recently at a conference called Leaders in Sport and they're out of London, UK, and they, they do these huge global uh, sports events, the both business side and the high performance side. And, and what I ended up speaking about was you know, why our high performance lessons from our athletes never apply to us as the coaches or even to your point, the front office. And that idea actually stemmed from, I was speaking to someone at one of the NBA clubs who, if you go by their current form, they'll go far this year. And I said, how much mental training and and facility do you have around the players? And like, oh, we've got all the best stuff. And I said, well, does the guy, the, you know, the new guy that you've hired in the ticket booth uh, or, or group sales, does he have access to that same thing? Like, why isn't he optimized as well? Um, because, you know, you start to think about it. So if, if that kid uh, understands his own mentality and can break himself down and, and have that self-talk like a player would uh, and understand why his armpits get sweaty when he makes cold calls and also know trigger words that he can use to get himself back focused if he does that, he sells more tickets. Now, if a, if a basketball club sells more tickets, what do they get? More money. So, and, you know, so we're yet to even think about a lot of basically all of the high performance lessons we've, we've learned, the sports science lessons. Could we apply them on an organizational structure? Because we know what they are and we know how to implement them because we've done it with the athletes. If we took that to everyone else and we started encouraging our executives and our coaches to go and sleep more because we know eight hours of sleep is the optimal amount because we've studied it from a scientific perspective. What would happen to our organization from an optimization standpoint if everyone was doing this rather than, you know, I, I always use Bill's name in this, but we still glorify the fact that Bill Belichick sleeps three hours a night. Um, and we know that he wouldn't be optimized if that were the case. Um, so you're right. I, I think it's about to, uh, become an arms race. I know a couple of the clubs here in Toronto are seriously looking at it and they're doing great work off the field around this, but this is about to blow up. Like this is the next sports revolution. How do we best look after our people and how do we mirror that car dealership and actually start to put millions of dollars behind it? Awesome. So I could keep riffing with you all day and we'll continue to riff, but I want to give you a platform to talk about your podcast a little bit more. You gave some insight into what it looks like. I think what makes his podcast, what makes Cody's podcast really unique is, as you said, he, it's first of all, it's in a triad, which I think is hard to do because I've, I've done a podcast with two other people and just the flow of it is, is a challenge. But what I think is so cool about it is 
Um, and not all of yours are triads, but uh, there certainly are some. The one that I listen to with Adam Grant and Joe Dumars, for example, what's cool about it is you end up having Adam Grant, who is this unbelievable writer and is at the top of the world in the self-help psychology world, asking Joe Dumars, who is a Hall of Fame basketball player and an amazing general manager and helped build the Detroit Pistons, asking each other questions and ping-ponging off each other. And that is such a cool dynamic because you have them at the intersection of being a, an expert and a novice. So they're asking questions as if they're a novice, but they're answering as if they're experts because they are. And then you are facilitating that discussion between the two of them. And there's something beautiful about triads because triads allow us to either be the novice or the expert or the observer. And when I, uh, have been in school settings, whenever it's a triad situation, I love the opportunity to just be an observer and just notice things. I also love the op opportunity to be the expert or the novice. And so I love your podcast in that way. I think it's different and it's unique. And I highly recommend people go over and, and listen to Cody's podcast. So tell us more about the podcast. Tell us about the book. Why choose the name that you chose for, for both? Uh, just give us some context, which has been a theme throughout this conversation uh, on both of those. Yeah, so they're both called Where Others Won't. And the idea came from, like what I was talking about before, this, this idea that, you know, the, the sustained success in sport is, is created by going where others won't. It, it's the little things that the Patriots do that are completely different to what everyone else in the industry is doing. Uh, it's the, the money ball idea of, uh, you know, at that time, adopting analytics just wasn't a thing. They went where others won't. So, I, I wish there was this, you know, glorious story behind it, but literally I thought of it uh, standing on a train platform one day <laughs> and just ran with it. And it's, it's since occurred to me that the acronym is WOW, which also happens to work. Um, so I wrote the book in December 2017. It came out. And to be honest with you, a lot of people came to me and said, do a podcast, do a podcast. But I didn't want to be a podcast host. And I still kind of don't, but uh, I flew home from my wedding. I'd spent three weeks around all my family and friends and uh, my, my, my wife's family and friends. And the idea for the podcast that you just described came to me. And, uh, you know, I, I really looked at it from a different perspective. I, I, I didn't want to just have another interview show um, because my interests would have been capped then. And, you know, like you can probably tell from, our discussion. I am interested in business leadership. I am interested in sports coaching. I'm interested in ideas from all over. And so I wanted to have all of those different aspects accounted for. And so I, I wrote up the, the concept for it, which was a triad. And I sent it to Adam and I sent it to Joe and a few other you know high profile people and said, Hey, look, like, would you do this if I actually went ahead with it? And both, you know, uh, everyone responded right away. I was like, yes, absolutely. You know, I'd clear my calendar to do this kind of thing. And yeah. The, why, the, why, why do you think they did? Because these are people that are getting pitched all the time to come on podcasts. I mean, everyone, the joke is everybody's got a podcast now. Um, so why do you think they thought that it was something that they would want to do? I think, and I, I haven't tested this. I have no data for this, but one thing that I wanted to do was use it as a networking opportunity for those people as well. So what I've done is not just randomly select Adam Grant and Joe Dumas, uh, 
you know, they uh, hadn't met and have uh, a lot of similarities. Adam grew up in Michigan. He was a Detroit Pistons fan. And uh, so, you know, Joe would have been one of his heroes growing up, but they hadn't met, but they have all these similarities and the show is about humility. There is no one more humble than Joe Dumas. This is Michael Jordan's toughest opponent. And you listen to Joe talk about it. He's like, yeah, my team was, we were great. And he, you know, he refuses to take, um, uh, you know, take all the plaudits. And then you've got Adam Grant who writes about it you know, so eloquently and is at the forefront of the academic side of humility and actually studying it. But these two haven't had a conversation. So I, I had an opportunity to bring them together. And, and so that's, that was the idea behind the triad was people that don't know each other, that have expertise around a particular topic. Can I put them together and, uh, and just, <laughs> and facilitate that conversation for them. And, and obviously I, you know, I can hold my own from a conversation perspective and, and not just be a facilitator, but actually be a third wheel uh, in the conversation as well. But for the most part, it's about, uh, yeah, I think they said yes, because it's not just me interviewing Adam Grant, uh, who he must have a separate folder in his email <laughs> for people that want to speak to him. But, you know, I, I guess it brought something different. And, um, you know, I've just kind of built on top of that and, you know, there's episodes coming out. I've got Mike Lombardi racked up on Monday and, you know, uh, someone who's had access to the three best you know, NFL coaches probably of all time. And, um, you know, two, two of the guys from Google, uh, that I spoke to last night. And so, yeah, it just becomes, um, uh, something a little bit different. You know, you're not going to get it on Joe Rogan. You're not going to get it on Tim Ferriss. Uh, so maybe that, you know, that can be my thing where when people come to Toronto, they go on Cody's show because they're going to be paired up with someone that they haven't met, but they've got some similar ideas to. And like you and I know, because, you know, we end up talking for two hours at a time whenever we speak is once you get going on a topic that you love, you just go. Uh, and so that's the magic of it for me is just hearing these people get to talk about what they love with another person who loves it as much. When you're at a bar or you're back home or you're out to dinner or you're at an event, how, people ask you what you do. How do you answer it? That's <laughs> uh, pretty much my answer. I just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> he, he flat out, you guys won't be able to see him, but he's flat out ear to ear grinning at me laughing. So, so like, well, yeah, what do you, what do you say? Well, I, I, I try, so again, I'm going to go back to the same idea. I try to judge the context. What's this person going to be interested in? For the most part, they're not even going to know what Aussie rules football is. So trying to do that thing and, and uh, have people say, so that's rugby, uh, <laughs> I, that frustrates me. So I try not to go down that path. But um, no, at my core, I'm a, I'm a writer. Uh, I'm a professional writer. That's what I was doing in the corporate world. I've been in sales in a few different areas, but uh, you know, I'm a writer. And so generally I would lead with that because that opens... I can talk about the business world. I can talk about my book. I can talk about how that stemmed into a podcast. Um, what makes a great writer? Uh, that's a good question. For me, it's someone who is clearly writing for the, the reader. Uh, and I don't mean adjusting their ideas for the reader. Um, Cause I think people, think that, that that's something that they should do. 
that they should actually write for the reader. So I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is that uh, they are very knowledgeable about what they want the reader to get out of it and what the value will be for the reader. So um, for me, as an example, again, I made this point earlier, I tried to write my book for middle managers. And so I adapted all of the language that I used and the examples that I used for someone who was in a director role, a senior manager role, a manager role in probably a large organization, not a ma and pa shop. Um, and so I admire writers who can do that and, and still get their message across. So I'm going to talk to this particular audience. And so with that particular audience, I'm going to use these particular words or this way of phrasing things. Um, and that's what I like to consume as a consumer. And that's how I try to write as a writer. Where'd you learn how to write? Self-taught. Um, I was good at English looking back at my high school career, very good at English. Uh, but I actually studied business and how I ended up in the profession was by blogging, blogging about sports and just developed uh, those skills there. And I guess I had a solid understanding of the English language, where to put commas, what an Oxford comma is, how language flows. The great thing is that language is, particularly the written word is, it's actually flexible. And so you can write a whole bunch of different ways and be exquisite at the same time. You don't need to write these long ranging Malcolm Gladwell sentences where you're just blown away by the sentence on its own. That could be broken down into three or five different sentences and still be uh, extraordinary. And so that's what I like about it is people have this idea because what we were taught in school was like, there is one way that is not the case. And, you know, I don't want to go into problems with the education system because <laughs> we'll be here for a long time. But um, so being self-taught, I was able to find my way of writing. And it turns out that people seem to like to, to read uh, what I put out. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm not classically trained to answer your question. I, I taught myself and found a, a vehicle through sports to then flip it over into business. There's a thread that you've hit on throughout, which is this idea of where others won't, this idea of uh, leadership not being some one size fits all, this idea of writing, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. You really value nuance and context. You really value this notion of doing things differently, uh, not necessarily just going with the status quo. You, you love that idea of going in a, a different direction. Any idea where that was developed inside of you? No, I don't know where that stems from. Uh, I mean, the easy answer is probably something in my childhood, but I, I don't, I can't pinpoint that, but you're right. I, I, I just don't like being in the mainstream. I have no interest in it. Um, either from an intellectual perspective or just in general, I, I think, uh, again, maybe it comes from my leadership study, but uh, I look at, all sorts of different disciplines and it's never the people that are implementing the best practices that everyone talks about that actually get anywhere. And so, you know, it's just a pattern that I've, I've observed and that's why I've created, I wanted to create a 
different podcast and I wanted to write a different book. And I think I coach quite differently. I, yeah, I, I pinched ideas from hockey and lacrosse and, you know, uh, all these different sports. And yeah, it just, it seems to me that the quickest path to the top is going where others won't, which is looking in the margins and how do I get an advantage over in the one or 2% that actually turns into the other 98% further down the line. Um, whereas a lot of people I think seem to be stuck in the, just the, the barriers um, and trying to work their way up the ladder. Um, but I'd rather try and scale up the, uh, the water drain on the side. Awesome. So it's 2029, you're 45 years old. Uh, what are you doing? I hope talking to you. I hope we can, I, I hope we do our, our 10 year reunion podcast. Um, no, I, I, I really, that's a lot of pressure to put on me, Cody, to continue to do this <laughs> for another 10 years. You'll be like episode 1000 or something like that. I can't do the math on that. So don't quote me, but yeah. Anyway, back to you. Yeah. What do you, what do you, where do you see yourself doing 10 years from now? I'd love to still be in this space. I mean, I, you know, I'm double and tripled down in, in this area and, you know, I, I, leadership and culture development and coaching aren't things that are going away. And it just interests me so much. I've never found, even playing sports, I think I've never found something that has interested me like this discipline. And so um, I, I'm interested in being a practitioner. I don't want to be a, I consider myself a theorist in that my ideas tend to be more theory based, but I'd love to, you know, sit in this, in this little uh, enclave between sports and business and, and be a translator for people and what's going on over here. How can we adapt that back? And so I guess that lends itself to writing and consulting and speaking, uh, which is what I'm doing now. And I, you know, I want to stay here. I, I think the most value that I can give to the human race and the thing that, you know, when I die is going to hopefully put me on the front page uh, of the newspaper versus the, you know, in the obituaries with everyone else is, uh, is this area. Um, so I, I'm sure my ideas would have changed wholeheartedly when we chat again in 10 years, but, uh, I am committed to it being in this space still and, and hopefully helping other people, uh, learn about this, this passion that both you and I share. Well, we'll check back in in 10 years and we'll give an update on Cody, if not before then. Uh, Cody, let everyone know where they can find you on social media and also your website as well. Yeah. So the, again, the book and the podcast are both called Where Others Won't. Uh, so, you know, book, obviously Amazon, uh, iTunes, everything for the podcast. Social media, I'm very easy to find. There are not many people with my name. So Cody, C-O-D-Y, Royal, R-O-Y-L-E. So that's my Instagram handle. It's my Twitter handle. And uh, CodyRoyal.com houses all of that. It houses uh, my book, my speaking, podcast, uh, everything, uh, my newsletter, everything you you would want to find out about me. Awesome. So 10 years from now, we will have this sponsored by Twitter. So thanks to Twitter, (laughs) if they're still around. And uh, I appreciate Twitter for connecting the two of us and just loved our conversations before and love this conversation. And I think we have a lot of mutual passions and values and looking forward to continue to explore it. And I'm happy that I got to share you with my community as well. So I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And you can go to my 
my website, blevinson.com. Cody, this has been a lot of fun. Looking forward to doing it again sometime. Brian, thanks so much for inviting me on. And yeah, I can't wait for our 10-year check-in. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You know, one of my core ideas around leadership is the idea of context. And it often gets lost, and it certainly got lost in the discussion around ISO, in that um, it's almost a how dare people sit there and judge what is going on in that scenario uh, without knowing the context. And what the context is in, in coaching in particular and that space is you have no idea the level of trust and the communication protocols that have been developed by that team. And uh, often, you know, those things obviously are, are developed and, and play out in the background, in the inner sanctum, in the locker room. But for people to just jump on social media and say he shouldn't be doing that, uh, that's just as much of a problem as uh, what they perceive he is doing. Um, and, and to kind of build on that idea a little bit, you know, people latch on to what they want. And there's this idea in leadership at the moment that it kind of, and I was funnily enough just tweeting about this earlier, was a huge problem that I see is we're trying to create a singularity out of leadership in that there is one way and there is not one way and there are going to be your Zen coaches like you've just described last night who have that emotional control. There are going to be your more emotional coaches. Um, but what what I think we make the mistake of doing is we look at, you know, uh, John Wooden quotes about the, the carrot being mightier than the stick. And then you speak to people that played for John Wooden and they're like, he knew what the stick was. And, you know, I wrote a, a whole chapter on that in my book. I'm like, it's not, it's not carrot over stick, it's carrot and stick. 